All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. I did not test this mic, so you'll have to give it a second. Uh, I was running a little late, so... uh, so here we are. So Luke chapter 4. Before we get there, I have uh, just one quick announcement. You know, i, I got to do the follow-up announcement. Uh, many of you guys know that uh, coming up the first weekend of April, well, kind of technically, April 8th and 9th, let me not try to dance around that, we have the parenting conference coming up. And so we're really excited to, uh, to jump into this together. Our topic for this conference is the intentional family. Uh, so for all of you that are, that are parents, raising children, maybe you're uh, looking forward, maybe you're expecting parents or looking forward to being parents, I'd encourage you guys to, uh, to, to, it's really echoey, isn't it? Okay, we're good? I'm just going to keep going. Uh, but I'd encourage you guys, your parents, future parents, whatever, uh, I'd encourage you to be a part of this. We will be, like I said, going through the topic of the intentional family, talking about being intentional with our family rhythms, being intentional uh, with, with the way that we structure and order our time, how we raise uh, our children. It's going to be a really excellent weekend, and it'll take place over two days, so we'll have a Friday night online session that you'll be able to join. We've kind of worked the time slot around kids' bedtimes, and then there'll be a guy a discussion for you and your spouse, and then you can join us at CTK Eastern Hills the next day, and we'll do kind of a kind of a half day, long morning sort of sort of deal. Go through a few different main sessions, talking about some of these topics, and have some breakouts for discussion as well. So the cost is forty-five dollars. That's per family, and you guys can sign up. You can find the link on the public. So go to ctkcincy.com/slash/the-public, and that forty-five dollars covers uh, all the cost of doing the event. We'll even send you home uh, fed. We'll have it. We'll have a brunch that we're catering in on Saturday, and we are sending you home with some books, some recommended resources that you can be reading. So if you haven't sign up today, uh, the, the, we have some. We have some people have already jumped on it. I know in your heart of hearts that you guys love to wait until the the last possible minute, and I'm asking you to resist the temptation to wait until the last minute and to incentivize my ask. We have, uh, we have lowered the price by just a few bucks, five bucks, uh, before next Sunday, the 27th, so if you sign up before then, it'll be a little bit cheaper, and if not, we will punish you. Sound good? All right. Look forward to seeing you guys there. So Luke chapter 4, we're continuing in our Luke series, and last week we looked at this scene of Jesus being baptized, this incredible scene of, of, of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, and he, he comes up, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit, and before he enters into his public ministry as he goes around to all these different places, uh, we see one more very important thing in the life and story of Jesus. We see that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus goes in the wilderness to be tempted uh, by Satan. I brought a little prop this morning. Claps for me, right? Any fishermen? Anybody like to go fishing? Can somebody say yes? Okay, thank you. Do we need to like reset and wake up a little bit? Okay, there's at least, has anyone fished before? Okay, there we go, that's a little bit better. So there's a little trout fishing setup I brought this morning as I was thinking about uh, this temptation scene. This is what came to mind. And this little, there's a little six-foot uh, rod here. And, and on the end of it, it's got this little piece of bait. You can probably barely see it. It's a little white thing called trout magnet, courtesy of Arkansas, by the way. Both this trout magnet and me came from Arkansas, greatest state in the country. So this little trout magnet right here, it's this little white rubber thing on a hook. And uh, when, you, when you go fishing, of course, trout, like any other fish, are, are fickle. They, uh, they, they kind of learn your tactics. You're trying to deceive them, outsmart a fish, which I know is kind of funny because 
your brain is literally like bigger than most of the fish that you catch. You would think it'd be pretty easy to outsmart them, but sometimes it's kind of tricky. They kind of learn your habits and your patterns, and so what do you try to do? Well, you try to change up your tactics. Maybe you'll change the color of the hook, the depth of the bobber. Maybe you want to be a little more shallow. Maybe you'll change up the color of the trout magnet. All these things you're trying to figure out. What does it take to outsmart that fish so that I can deceive it and catch it? And the reason I thought of that this morning is because when we look at this scene of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, we see Satan doing exactly that to Jesus. And Thomas Brooks, is, uh, he's a Puritan author, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, he says this, temptation is nothing more than bait on a hook. And see, the same way that we, we go about like trying to change up the bait on our hook, trying to deceive and outsmart the fish that we try to catch when we go fishing, Thomas Brooks says that Satan will bait your hook with whatever is most tempting to you. Whatever desire you have in your heart, desire to have money, to be someone of significance, to be important, to be noticed, to be recognized for our efforts, whatever desire is going on in our heart, Satan will use these things to tempt us to sin. And his ultimate goal of doing that is not to reel you in and just say, hey, look, I caught one. And his ultimate goal is destruction. Satan is real and active, and through temptation, he wants to lead us to sin. He, we know that he is after destruction. Satan is here for the deformation of our souls. In our passage today, when Jesus is, is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, I think that there is kind of a unique point to this passage, but there's a truth for us also that I want us to see and recognize. But first, the, the unique truth about this passage that, that makes it kind of unique from our experience is that when Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted, well, of course, he was tempted as the Son of God. So the point of this passage is that the Son of God was led into the wilderness. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he faced all of these temptations. He wrestled with Satan for 40 days, yet he was without sin. Jesus was perfectly able to resist Satan's temptation. That is the point of this passage, but I think that there is an incredible truth for us this morning, a truth that we see start to take shape in this passage, that Jesus gives us grace to overcome temptation. Jesus gives us grace to overcome temptation. So we'll look at a few points this morning. I, I, I want us to see as we walk through this passage that Jesus knows temptation. Jesus has forgiveness for those who have given into temptation. And Jesus helps those who are being tempted. But first, let's take a walk through this passage. So like I said, we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 1. Uh, we'll go all the way through verse 15. Uh, today. And we'll, before we read this passage, I, I do want to make one quick point, uh, just kind of some theological clarif clarification that might kind of help our minds as we start to look at this idea. Uh, it's this. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. So make a distinction in your mind. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. Uh, Jesus didn't go into the wilderness and sin. Jesus was led in the wilderness to be tempted. So that raises the question, not begs the question, if you say that, shame on you. It raises the question. That was a joke for like two people. Uh, it raises, there you go, those two people laughed. Uh, what is temptation? Well, James 1, 14 through 15 says, But each one is tempted when by his own sin or his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And sin, when it is fully grown, give, gives birth to death. You see, this is what's happening when, when we are tempted. When we face temptation, this is what was happening with Jesus, although his experience was unique from ours. Temptation is when the disordered desires of our hearts uh, are, are enticed and drawn away. That leads to sin. So the reason that's important, a couple of reasons. The first one is that Jesus had no sinful desires to tempt. So even though he faced temptation, the temptation was ultimately ineffective because there were no evil, disordered desires in his heart. He was the perfectly righteous son of God. He resisted temptation because he was without sin. But the second reason that that is important for us to recognize is because it helps us to understand better how Satan tries to work in our lives through temptation. He wants to play on these desires of our hearts and lead us astray and cause us to sin. A lot of times it starts smaller than Satan simply saying, hey, why don't, why don't, why don't you abuse alcohol? Or why don't you yell at your wife today? Like it, it starts much smaller than that. It begins as a smaller uh, thing in our hearts. That's how Satan works through temptation. So let's read this passage together. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So a few ideas I want to just draw out here. Uh, it says that he was coming from the Jordan. So remember, uh, the Jordan River is where he was baptized by John the Baptist. So we see this incredible scene of Jesus being obedient to baptism, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And just before he begins this public ministry as he goes around uh, teaching and everything else that we read in the Gospel of Luke, we have this we have this scene here where Jesus is led in the wilderness to be tempted. And, and we kind of see a repetition of this phrase here. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, this idea that, that Jesus was full of this Holy Spirit is, is very important for Luke's gospel. In fact, if you think about Luke and Acts, they were written as two volumes, one work, right? You think about Luke and Acts, how much does the Holy Spirit show up all throughout there? Well, it's very important. How do we know that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah of the Scriptures who was to come? Well, it was because, like Isaiah 11, verse 2 said, the Spirit of God rested on him. People could see that. Clearly, this man was of God. The Holy Spirit rested on him. And this kind of takes shape all the way throughout Luke and even into Acts. We see this in the Jews and in the Gentiles. What happens to the people of God? Well, how are they defined? They are the people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is extremely important all throughout Luke's gospel. And it's important to the scene right here. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So I want us to see this right here. This is true for Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It wasn't by accident, and it wasn't by coincidence. God led Jesus into the wilderness. God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted to sin because he had a specific purpose. You see, this idea of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is vital to who he is and what he would do. Jesus had to face and be tempted with sin. Because ultimately he had to be sinless. And ultimately we know that our Savior went to the cross sinlessly. 
He forgave sin through his blood shed on the cross. All of this is, is vitally important to God's will and his plan for the life and ministry of Jesus. That he would face the temptation but was without sin himself. And he would go to the cross without sin himself. That makes him the savior for us that he is. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. That's who Jesus was. This is essential to what he has done. This is essential to him being an understanding, gracious Savior for us. He was tempted just as we are, and he was without sin. In verse 2, it says that uh, he was there for 40 days, and in, and in the course of those 40 days, he was hungry, I'm looking out in the room, I see a couple medical professionals, so maybe consult them. But I, I, I would venture to say, if you do a 40-day fast, probably not good for you. Right, David Bailey, is that not good for you? Okay, good. I'm just checking my, checking my facts. Before you think about going on a 40-day fast, not having any food, that's probably not good for you. Maybe don't do that, but that's exactly what Jesus did here. He was fasting, he was without food. For 40 days, he wrestled with Satan, wrestled with these temptations, and it says that Pretty simply, because he was flesh, he was hungry, right? Now, this 40 days is really important to, to something that Luke is trying to help us see here. You see, this scene comes right off of the heels of a passage that we actually skipped. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to preach a genealogy when it's just a bunch of names. I mean, certainly we could just read that and God would be glorified, right? Uh, but it's certainly hard to kind of preach a passage out of a genealogy, and so we skipped that section today, but... Arriving us here to this passage, we see this genealogy starting with Jesus unfolding all the way back down. Look in your Bibles. Who was the last person that it mentions? Where does this genealogy go? To Adam. It traces geneal the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And, and what is happening when, when Luke inserts this genealogy right here, what he's doing is he's setting up the dominoes to try to make a point that Jesus picked up where Adam failed. Jesus picked up where Adam failed. Right here in this, in this compact section, he's making this really bold claim about Jesus that he was the greater Adam. You see, whereas Adam lived in paradise and gave into temptation and then was brought into the wilderness, exile from the garden, Jesus entered the wilderness, not an area of perfection, but an area of struggle and hardship, he faced these temptations. You see, they were totally different, and, and, and he's trying to help us see that here. Adam had paradise, but gave into temptation and found himself in wilderness. Jesus entered the wilderness and resisted temptation perfectly. But then he goes on to make another point, this idea of, of him wrestling for 40 days. It not only shows us that he's the greater Adam, but it reminds us of two really important figures in the Old Testament, these prophets that we know also had these 40-day fasting periods of seeking God, uh, both Moses and Elijah. You see, they fasted for 40 days. They had their own kind of wilderness experience of seeking God. And this is meant to show us that Jesus is greater than these prophets and men of God. But then the third kind of domino that we see right here is that, what the, is that, that 40 days reminds us of God's people wandering in the wilderness. So if you know the scene following the Egyptian captivity, God, God brings the Egyptians out of captivity, and, or the 
Israel, Israel out of Egyptian captivity and is leading them to the promised land. And before they get there, uh, God punishes them for their doubt and their disbelief and sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And that 40 is meant to, to bring to mind this idea that Jesus, just like Israel, entered the wilderness, entered temptation, but he, unlike any people of God or any human ever could, would be victorious over temptation in a way that no one else could be. So let's look at these temptations right here, starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for, from here, for it is written, who's saying this, Satan. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So a few things to note right here. Uh, right at the beginning of these temptations, now there are probably more, but, but we see three of them here. We see the same three uh, recorded in Luke that we see in Matthew. The order is just reversed for, uh, for a couple different theological reasons. But, but we see these three big scenes right here. And, and notice that, that it begins the same way that it ends. You see, this, this scene of Jesus being tempted uh, begins with the idea of Satan tempting him according to his weakness. And that's exactly how it ends as well. In verse 3, Jesus was hungry because he had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. How does Satan tempt Jesus? Oh, you are the son of God. Why don't you eat? Just turn this stone into bread. You can do that. You'll turn water into wine later. Why not turn a stone into bread? And he ends the same way. Once Jesus had faced all of these temptations, he realized that Jesus was strong. He was, un he was unable to be tempted, that he was able to perfectly resist the temptation of Satan. And so he recognized, hey, my time is up. This isn't working anymore. So what does he do? Well, it says he departed until an opportune time. You see, he had an opportune time, he thought, but Jesus resisted. So he departed. He said, I'll come back to this later. See, there's an important idea here that I really want us to see about temptation. And that's that Satan often tries to exploit our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities to lead us into temptation and sin. Are you sad? Lonely? Self-critical? Feeling small? Satan uses these things, our weaknesses. He knows us. He's cunning. He's evil. He sees our heart. He knows truth and he knows how to distort it. He knows how to get in there deep in the way that we think, in the way that we feel, the things that we love, the things that we long for. And he wants to work his way in there and lead us astray. That's how Satan works. He looks for our vulnerabilities. St. Augustine described sin this way. He called it a disordered love. Sin is a disordered love. 
And what that means is that we as people made in the image of God have an idea of, of, of what it means to love God. We're, we're made to want and long after the good things, but because of the sinful perversion of our flesh and of our hearts, we, we often have these disordered loves where we chase after the wrong things in the wrong ways. And Satan knows that about us and he knows our weaknesses and he preys on those disordered desires to tempt us. Whatever sin you're facing in your life, here's a principle for you that I want you to hold on to. Whatever sin is in your life, whether it's like a one-time thing that you see every once in a while, know this, you can trace the smoke back down to the flame and see in your heart where you love the wrong thing in the wrong way. Satan wants to prey on the disordered desires of your heart and of your life and lead you into sin. And notice how he does that. Notice his tactics. You see, Satan is a liar, and his native language is lies. That's what Jesus tells, tells his opponents in, in John 8, chapter 44. He says that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. When he comes and when he shows up in the life of Jesus and in our lives, know that he is speaking his native language with, his, with lies. And, and what that means is that when he tempts us, when he tries to lead us into sin, often it starts through even the most subtle of lies and deceptions. You see, Jesus, you see Satan wants us to disbelieve what is true and to believe what is false. He's trying to deceive and manipulate our minds. And, and how does he do that here? What are the lies he tries to tempt Jesus with? Well, there's a few that we see, right? The first one is pretty simple and seems kind of harmless. You see, Satan tempts Jesus to make small compromises. In verse 3, it begins very subtly. He says, well, hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Um, why don't you turn that stone into bread? Why don't you eat something? You look, you look, you're looking skinny. Why don't you eat something? Turn the stone into bread. That seems harmless, right? It's a small compromise. It seems like nothing. Eating is not a sin, right? But there's kind of a bigger subtext here, which is that the struggle, will, will Jesus obey Satan and do what he says? Or will he resist that temptation, resist his own weaknesses, and overcome these things? But Satan also tempts Jesus by questioning his identity. In verse 3, he also says, if you are the son of God, then do this, right? And we see he, he actually says that twice, but this is the first one. He says, if you are the son of God, you see Jesus tempts, or Satan tempts Jesus on the level of identity. And if you can just imagine, start to extrapolate in your mind, you can see how that is often true for yourself as well. Satan wants to deceive us about who we are. Satan will say, hey, you need to chase after these things because you're just a human with needs. Well, God wouldn't have given you this desire if he didn't want you to chase after it, right? See, Satan works his way in our mind. He wants to deceive us at the level of identity. But he also pay, plays on uh, the human desire for greatness and power. In verses 5 and 6, he offers Jesus, he says, look out at all of these kingdoms. So he starts here and brings them up on the mountain. He says, look at everything that you see. I can give you authority over it all if you'll just bow down to me. Now, there's a little bit of irony here, right? Because Satan is trying to play on this desire for greatness and power. And the irony here is that Jesus is the rightful heir to all creation. Satan has control over these things because God gave it to him. And he's trying to give it away to God in the flesh, right? So there's a little bit of irony taking place right here. You see, even though Jesus was the rightful heir to all creation, he had 
quite another goal in mind. He wasn't just here to rule over creation. He wanted to redeem it. And he knew that wouldn't come easy. That came through the way of the cross. He knew that he had to be obedient to death. There was no easy way out. But notice also, when, when Satan says that the earthly kingdoms are his domain, domain, Jesus doesn't deny that. That's important. Like, un- understand the significance of that claim. God has given Satan control of the earthly kingdom. That's exactly what he claims in verse 6, and Jesus doesn't correct him. Satan is at work in the world. He has been given authority. These things have been handed over to him. And John 10.10 tells us that Satan's goal in creation is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he also tempts Jesus, trying to get him to question truth, question his own reality. Verses 9 through 12, it says that Jesus, or Satan takes Jesus up on the temple and says, throw yourself down. You are the son of God. The angels will come and rescue you. No big deal, right? Now, again, here's some irony, because what does Jesus have to prove to Satan, right? What does Jesus have to prove? But there's a bigger implication beneath this. Will Jesus question his status in the provision of God to protect him? Will he, will he be overcome with his frustration and, and just try to, try to silence Satan once and for all and say, fine, I'll do it. Look, look what I can do. But, but I, I think there's something even bigger here for us to see. See how Satan's deception works here. Of all these times of Jesus answering, now I could have like preached a sermon. I've probably heard this one before. Maybe you have as well. It's like, look at the temptation scene. And then Satan tempts Jesus, and then you, he, he quotes scripture back to him. So hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. So when you're tempted, just memorize some scripture. I could have told you that one, I guess. So that, that's fine. If that's the lesson you hear, that's great. I don't want to like besmirch that or anything like that. But, but see that Satan is, is stronger than that. Satan is smarter and more clever, more cunning than that. Because guess who also knows the Bible and uses not just lies, but deceptions and almost truths to tempt us? Here's a scary reality. Satan knows you better than you know you, and he knows the Bible better than you know it. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's tricky. And he uses these almost truths to tempt us. So here's the point. As we see all these different things unfolding, all these different ways that that Satan is tempting Jesus, here's here's the main thing that I, I want you to see highlighted that I hope that you hold on to and see is a very real and pressing truth this morning, and that's this. Satan is real and active in the world, and his goal is the deformation of your soul. Satan is real and active in the world, and his goal is the deformation of your soul. Satan, as he wanted to tempt Jesus, wants to lead us into temptation, causing us to question reality, distrust God, question truth, lean into our own sinful sinful temptations and desires. And what that means is that as we know that this is true, we know that this is a spiritual reality uh, we face, that means that we have to be aware of Satan's tactics. That just like he did in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve, sometimes these, these, these lies and these manipulations, these temptations begin with the most simple of questions, Satan's favorite four words. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Did God really say that's who you are? 
Did God really say don't do that? Often it begins with these subtle manipulations, these subtle temptations. You see, Satan doesn't even need to convince us it's true. He just needs us to believe it. And he tries to work in our lives to get us to do that. He's clever. He wants to cause us to doubt. So why is it important that we recognize it? Right? I think there's many different reasons why we might want to shy away from that discussion. Uh, there, there's a lot of different things in our hearts that say, like, hey, can we just, like, get away from that? That's a, that's a, little, too, that's a little too thorny. Like, I, I don't want to get near that. That's, that's tough. Satan is a deceiver. He's in control of the world. I don't want to talk about that. That's not encouraging. Well, it, maybe it's not in some senses. Uh, I will get to the encouragement in a second. But why is it important that we recognize this? Well, because our understanding of the threat changes our posture to it. Our understanding of the threat changes our posture to it. Uh, any of you guys campers like to go camping, hiking, anything like that? Okay, a handful of you. Uh, my wife lowered her hand, I'm sure, uh, to counteract you. Uh, this is actually on a trip with her. Um, I somehow ended up as the hiking guide on this trip of all females. And uh, it, was, it, was my, it was my then girlfriend, now wife, and a couple other friends from college. And I was taking them out to this place called Painter's Bluff uh, in Arkansas. It's this, it's this great area as you go away from like the Mississippi River Delta where everything's flat. All of a sudden it's these beautiful hills and mountains. And we go over into this area and there's this great uh, area called Painter's Bluff. It's this beautiful uh, picture where you kind of work your way out on this trail and there's this river that crosses around. I mean, it's the most picturesque thing that I've ever uh, seen. And this, this river kind of curls around it. And there's, this, there's a train track that runs next to it in the middle of the night. You can hear the sound of the train just coming by. It's so much fun to go out there. But you're way up on the mountain, this area that I like to go camping and hiking by. You're kind of way up on the mountain, and there's this steep drop-off. But it makes the view gorgeous, but, but you're kind of up there, and it's kind of precarious, and it's just so much fun. And I love going there, and I went there all the time. I knew it like the back of my hand. Uh, we would go camping there every other week when I was in college. It was so much fun. And, and I had the bright idea that I was going to take uh, all these, all these uh, new campers, I guess, on, the, on this little uh, quick hike and, and camp overnight. And as we're driving up there, again, I know this place so well, and I get up there, and, and we set up our tents and everything like that. And it, but before we get there, we're, we're kind of driving along, and in the middle of the road, or kind of the trail getting up there, we stop, and I turn the headlights on a little brighter, and what scurries across the trail? A bear. It was a baby bear, which implies what? <laughs> Mom and dad are somewhere. Uh, that's not good. So this place that I knew so well, that I was so comfortable with, I mean, I would have I just, I've spent so much time there, I've never seen a bear or anything like that. It's not super common in Arkansas, but all of a sudden, my ears perked up and my eyes got as big as saucers, right? Because I'm looking around saying, Where's the rest of them? Because that baby's not by himself, right? And you see, in that moment, when I recognized that there was a threat, it changed my posture. All of a sudden, I wasn't laid back and casual. All of a sudden, I wasn't taking it easy, ready to have a good time. Every single sound that I heard for the rest of the night, I was like, could it be? Like, I'll just stay really still and hope that it doesn't mess with me, right? Every single thing that I heard, it changed my posture. What we understand to be true about the threat changes our posture to it. And that's the way that the Bible speaks about Satan. That's the way that the Bible speaks about temptation. You see, in 1 Peter 5.8, it tells us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is real, and he is active. He's looking 
to deform your soul. He's looking to lead you into temptation and sin. And what that means is that we have to be on guard. That means we have to be discerning of his tactics. Not afraid, but discerning of his tactics. So the scene wraps up this way. In, in, in verses 14 and 15, uh, we see Jesus' victory over all of these things. Verse 14 says that uh, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went to all the surrounding county, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Important thing to see here, Jesus finished the way that he started. Jesus finished exactly the way he started. He went in the power of the Spirit. He fought temptation by the power of the Spirit because the Spirit of God rested him. And by that power and by that strength, he overcame temptation perfectly. Now, like I said, we have this beautiful, awesome, glorious picture about who Jesus is and his, his profound power and ability. All of these things are true. And the point of this passage is about how Jesus, the Son of God, was victorious over Satan. He was victorious over temptation, both here and in an ultimate sense. But I think there's also a beautiful gospel truth for us that begins to emerge right here in this passage. And that's that Jesus gives us grace to overcome temptation. Jesus gives us grace to overcome temptation. So I mentioned I have just three brief points of application that I want to walk through this morning. And the first one is this. Jesus knows temptation. Jesus knows temptation. You see, this passage begins to lay the groundwork for a really important, life-changing, heart-shaping kind of idea, and that's that Jesus is no stranger to the temptation that we face. Jesus is no stranger to the temptation we face. Hey, you guys remember in like March 2020 or something like that, there was this like little thing that happened, and all of a sudden they were like, hey, we're all going to stay at home for two weeks, and we'll flatten the curve, and then we'll be back to normal. That Like two years ago, remember that? And one of my favorite things about that, I'm not like an avid social media user or anything like that, uh, but the thing that when I say it entertained me, it infuriated me, but like in an entertaining way. Uh, you see all these celebrities get on there on their little, their little Facebook posts and Instagram stories and things like that. And what are they saying? They're like, guys, we're in this together. Let's just stick it out. Let's stay at home. We can do this. We're in this together. I, I get it. I'm right where you are. Look at me. I'm humanizing myself. I'm right here stuck at home the way that you're stuck at home. You, ever, you see any of those? A bunch of those, right? Maybe they even make, make songs to Imagine uh, by John Lennon. Remember that one? That little, that, little, that little ditty? That was good, right? And the thing that was so just like off about that whole thing and that whole concept, and we saw so many examples of that, but what was so off about that is that they had no idea what any of the rest of us were doing. I was like, yeah, Beyonce, you're in your 25,000 square foot McMansion, one of four, and I'm sitting here in my 600 square foot apartment in Washington, D.C., while people yell at each other outside the 7-Eleven that I live above. We are not in the same world. Like, we're not, we're not in this together. You don't get it. You don't get it. I'm living a totally different life than you. If I get bored in my living room, you know where I go? To my bedroom. I, I guess my wife and I can switch spots, but you don't get it. You're not facing what I'm facing. And if she gets bored, what, if she goes watches TV in this room and then this room and then this room and then goes plays tennis outside and then goes swimming in her pool and has these luxury food delivered, like, come on, we're not living the same kind of life. And I think that we see that and that registers with us is just really kind of off, right? It's like, yeah, you don't actually get it. You say that we're doing the same thing. You say that we're the same kind of people, but 
you, you don't actually get it. You see, the enemy wants to use our doubt and shame to make us think that no one, especially Jesus, could understand our temptation. Right now, that's true in your life. The temptation and sin that you are facing, I bet, I'd bet my next paycheck on it, that somewhere in your mind there is a belief that no one really understands what I'm going through. No one really understands how messed up and crooked I am. If I were to say this, that would be so embarrassing. No one is, no one is tempted the way that I'm tempted. No one is sinning the way that I'm sinning. The enemy wants us to believe that. And he wants us to believe that especially about Jesus. The Jesus, our Savior, there's no way. Look at him. He went out into the desert and he was tempted and he was without sin. Who are you to think that you're anything like him, that he would understand you? He's so out of touch with you and your sin that he couldn't possibly have grace for a wicked, messed up sinner like you. But the opposite couldn't be more true. The opposite couldn't be more true. In, in fact, the Bible says that Jesus uniquely has patience, understanding, and grace because he faced every temptation that we face. He's not out of touch with who we are and where we are and what we're going through. He has grace for us because he faced temptation just as we do. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us see when he says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. What he's trying to show us and scream from the mountaintops is that Jesus is not surprised by the temptation that you face. No surprises there. He understands your desires as wicked and messed up and sinful as they are. He understands your desire for wealth. He understands your desire to be someone, to be a person of significance, to be recognized, to be appreciated, to have prosperity, to have comfort, to be indulgent, to find fulfillment. He understands and sees and knows all of those things. He's not out of touch with our reality. The difference between us and Jesus wasn't the temptation. It was that Jesus faced temptation but was without sin. And here's why that's important that we get this right. Because what we believe to be true about Jesus and who he is changes our relationship to him. If he's some far away, uh, impersonal God of the cosmos, then what does he know about the struggles that I face every day? If that's who God is and he's far away from me and he doesn't understand who I am, what does he know about the things that I want and the things that I love and where I am and what I'm going through or anything? like that. He's just some angry, vengeful, faraway God who sets these arbitrary rules and judges me when I fall short. But the gospel says that even though we ourselves give into the temptation of sin that leads to death, Jesus doesn't stand far away. He enters the brokenness to make a way for our redemption. Amen? We fractured the relationship that Jesus came to repair. We chose separation while he pursued reconciliation for our sake. And in order to do that, he did the most insane thing that we could ever imagine. Something that no other world religion says that their God did or would ever do. What did Jesus do? He came in flesh. He came in flesh. Jesus took on flesh and lived as we lived he was hungry, he was tired, he faced sorrow 
He laid his head to sleep at night. He knew what it was like to live in our shoes in every way because he did that. He walked as we walked. He even faced the temptation that we face. He knows what you walk through every single day. And what that means is that Jesus, in a way that, that no one else, in a no other way he could, he knows our temptations. He sees the struggles and things that we face. He knows how difficult it is for us in our flesh. Our failures aren't a surprise to him. Our sin, our temptation is no surprise to him. He sees every twisted, messed up thought you've ever had, every twisted, messed up thing that you've ever done, every disordered desire of your heart and in your life. In Romans 5, 8, says that he saw all those things, yet he loved us anyway. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw you at your worst, what you could possibly be, and he showed you his intentions for you in dying on the cross for your sin. Church, I want us to see that the freedom of the gospel invites us to just be honest about these temptations that we face, both before God and within our own selves. Anybody else like a, a like kind of have the like a high degree of the moody creative energy? Anybody? Uh, let me let me ask you a diagnostic question. Have you uh, said in the last two weeks you wouldn't understand? Got him. That's you. All right. So that's me. I totally think that way. My long-suffering wife can attest that like I have just it's like dark night of the soul in my life every single day. No one gets me. No one understands. No one sees me. That is how I am. Just honest pastoral confession for you. Uh, and you, now that you know that, you'll be like, oh, okay, I kind of see what you're saying there. Um, I feel that way often. I feel misunderstood. Like I'm not seen by people. Like I, I feel misrepresented, misunderstood in situations, and that's really difficult for me. And, and I think that we conceptualize our struggle with sin and temptation a lot in the same way. But the difference is that Jesus actually does understand. There is no sin or, or temptation that you have faced or that is foreign to him. And what that means is that we can be honest about that before God and before ourselves. And we can run away from the temptation to, to, be, to be just quiet and, and filled with shame about these things. In fact, being consumed by the shame of, over our temptation, convinced that no one else sees us or no one else understands our temptation, is about the most anti-gospel thing that we can do. It directly denies the grace of Jesus for us who understands and walks through and knows our temptations we face, yet freely offers his grace and mercy for us. So just as a point of application, I want to invite you to, by God's grace, bring into the light what is going on in your heart. Bring into light what is going on in your heart. It is a known factor to God. It is a known quantity to him. He knows what you're going through. Bring these things to light. Confess these things to God. Acknowledge it yourself. Say, God, I'm tempted because I've got this messed up desire in my heart. Acknowledge these things before. Acknowledge these things in community. Practice radical honesty. Walk in the freedom and power that God has given you by his grace. The second thing is this. Jesus forgives those who have given into temptation. As I mentioned before, this passage is about how Jesus endured and went through all the same temptations that we face, yet he was perfectly without sin. And this is a vital truth of the gospel because Jesus not only endured temptation so that he could better understand us or our situation, 
No, he resisted temptation and was without sin. And that matters a lot. Because Jesus wasn't coming to understand humanity better. He wasn't coming to broker some peace deal between, between mankind and God. Jesus was coming as the Savior to the world. So how did he do that? Well, the Bible tells us that he died on the cross for our sins, that he shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. How did that work? Well, 1 Peter 3.18 says that he literally took our rightful place as sinners on the cross. It says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what did that do? Well, through Jesus' sacrifice, we were granted righteousness instead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made, sin, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness for God. So what does all of that mean? That, that means that through Jesus, our sins can be forgiven because of his broken body and blood shed for us. If there's one thing that I can say this morning with absolute certainty, about every single person in the room, it's that you have faced temptation and you have failed, probably recently. Maybe this morning. And when we read this passage, it's good to, to see and understand and be discerning of Satan's tactics so that we might know how to better uh, fight these battles in the future. But the more important thing for us this morning is that we understand what happens when we can't do perfectly what Jesus did. More important is that we understand what to do when we can't do perfectly what Jesus did, that is resist temptation. So when, not if that happens, 1 John 1, 9 has the sweetest words of assurance in all the Bible. It says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news, this is the good news of the gospel. I mean, it comes with a healthy dose of reality that there's nothing that we can do to resist temptation perfectly as Jesus did. But that's exactly what makes the gospel good news because we can come to Jesus freely confessing our failures and sins because he sees and knows us. He understands what we're walking through. But most importantly, we can come to Jesus confessing these things because in him and in him alone is forgiveness. He will forgive us. When we fail, he will forgive us when we give in to temptation. And this is a simple truth that we have to be reminded of often because we will face temptation every single day. We will be deceived. We will feel defeated. We will feel worthless and completely unable and alone. And our instinct in that situation might be to look within ourselves for the answer. But hear this. We can't fight temptation without the context of the gospel. We can't fight temptation without the context of the gospel. We need to see and savor God's grace today and every single day. There's no doubt that, that when we talk about sin and temptation this morning, that every single person in the room, myself included, feels a weight on our shoulders. Because that's exactly what sin is. It's oppressive. It's real. It's ugly. I can say that personally. I, as a relentless self-critic, I know more than you know that the ugliness that is within my own soul is real and alive. I know, left on my own devices, I have words of shame and judgment for myself every single morning. 
when I wake up. But thank God that as Richard Sipp said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And I want to say this too. If reminding yourself of God's grace and goodness and mercy for your life doesn't sound like a good tactic, I think you need it all the more. If that doesn't sound like a good tactic to fight sin for you, then you need it all the more. As we fight temptation, we can't do it without the context of the gospel. Whatever it takes, see and savor God's grace. Get alone by yourself in the morning and preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the goodness of God and his mercy for you today and every single day. And finally, Jesus helps those who are being tempted. This is a powerful thing to know about the gospel, that God's grace is not simply to forgive us our sins. He intends to give us victory over them also. As we face the craftiness of Satan and his deceiving words of temptation, know that God's grace doesn't leave us to our own devices. God's grace equips us to resist temptation and walk in the way of Jesus. And the first thing in order to do that that we have to do is crucify the idea that we have the power within ourselves to overcome temptation and sin. Romans 8.13 is abundantly clear on the outcome of that. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We have no power within ourselves. Ephesians 6.11 through 12 tells us that we need to put on the full armor of God to stand up to the schemes of the devil because we are fighting a real spiritual battle of great consequence. Verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we might know and acknowledge in our heads that this is true, but taking it seriously on a practical level is a completely different thing. When we face temptation, it is a reflection of a real spiritual warfare taking place in and for our souls. And remember, that's Satan's tactic. That's his whole thing. He is real and he is active, and his goal is the deformation of your soul. And so often in our lives, myself included, we roll up to the battle with Nerf guns and silly string. We do. It's the most pathetic excuse ever for these real cosmic forces and spiritual darkness and warfare happening in our life. We rely on the dumbest, weakest of things to do that. We try to journal and set goals. We try to snap ourselves on the wrist with a rubber band when we do something we don't like. When we do something we don't like, we try to rewire the habit-forming uh, parts of our brain. We try to put filters on our computers so that we can resist temptation. We do all of these things, and, and none of those things are wrong. Don't mishear me. But understand that it's just not enough. What we need is to follow in the way of Jesus and go into battle armed with the truth of God's word and the power of the spirit. Psalm 1 says what happens when we are armed with the truth of God's word. It says that we will be like a tree firmly planted near streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its, and its leaves do not wither. We're fortified in the strength of God's word. Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says that I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Truth is the antidote to temptation. See that. We need to be not just know what God's word says, but be formed by it. We need to be formed by it. We need to, we need to be able to fight temptation. 
that thrives on lies and diversions from what is good, right, and true, and combat that with what is actually good, right, and true. But even then, if we are to endure temptation, we have to do it in the power of the Spirit. Now, I know this is a tough one, uh, talking to a room full of Baptists, um, but essential to Luke's gospel is this, is this point, that the Holy Spirit has come and dwells within us. If we are to walk in the way of Jesus, we have to be full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you are full of the Holy Spirit. There's no tank to refill. That's not what quiet time in the morning is. But secondly, the way that we are full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit is we learn to, to dial in our sensitivity to walk and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we do this? I know that this might sound trite, but we need to be devoted to seeking God and his word in prayer and in fasting. You ever notice something about your kid when you yell in a loud room full of different voices? If you say your kid's name, what can they do? They can pick your voice out of a crowd. They know they're being spoken to. We need to dial in our sensitivity to the spirit, walking with him, keeping in step in that way. We have to do that. Because when temptation comes our way, we need to be able to keep in step with the spirit whose voice we recognize. He will help us to endure temptation and show us a way to avoid it. That's what it means to walk with him in that way. So in conclusion, I just want to say that temptation isn't an inevitability for the Christian life. But the answer isn't you, and the answer isn't understanding Satan better, and it isn't some set of tactics. The answer is Jesus Jesus gives us grace to overcome temptation. He sees and knows our temptation. He has forgiveness for us when we fail, and he will give us the strength and power to face it. So wherever you are today, whatever you are walking to, through, I invite you to respond to Jesus in this way and seek his grace. Let's pray. God, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And we believe that's true. And so we ask you, Father, you have called us to a way of holiness, obedience, apprenticing with Jesus, walking in step with him, pursuing a way of life that you've called us to. We ask, Father, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, by the power of the Spirit, armed with the truth of your word, Father, I pray that you would work in our lives in real ways. Father, that you would transform our, 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 our lowly selves, our sinful selves. Father, make us more like Jesus. Father, we ask that you do this work of redemption today and every day in our lives and in our church. Father, we ask that, that you be with us, that you guide us, give us strength and power to endure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.